Hello, and welcome to this PrimeMed podcast focused on management of dyslipidemia. I'm Dr. Danielle Hebert, and I'm an adult nurse practitioner in primary care, as well as an assistant professor and coordinator of the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Track in the Tan Chinfen Graduate School of Nursing at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. While this episode is relevant to all primary care clinicians, it's part of a curriculum I've developed with PrimeMed and designed specifically to help nurse practitioners earn the pharmacology credits they need to maintain their licensure. Check out the other courses within the curriculum at www.primed.com forward slash Hebert. Thank you for joining me as we dive into the most recent data regarding heart disease and dyslipidemia. We'll begin with a brief review of the current evidence for managing controlled dyslipidemia, and then apply this information using case studies to address common patient scenarios in primary care. First, we're going to review some facts and data on dyslipidemia. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, heart disease, or cardiovascular disease, has been the leading cause of death in the United States since 1950, which is just crazy to think how long it has had this designation. Globally, during 2020, there was just over 19 million deaths due to it. The American Heart Association reports during that same year, there was 928,741 deaths in the U.S. due to heart disease, which can then be broken down further into contributing diagnoses with coronary heart disease leading the pack, as a cause for 41.2% of those deaths, followed very distantly by stroke at second place with 17.3%. Even scarier is that this breaks down to one death due to cardiovascular disease every 34 seconds and one due to stroke every 3 minutes and 17 seconds. These numbers are just completely mind-boggling. One of the main contributing factors to these stats is high cholesterol, which continues to be an issue across the United States. According to the CDC and the American Heart Association, during the years of 2017 to 2020, about 86 million, or a little over 34%, of adults over the age of 20 had a total cholesterol level above the recommended max goal of 200, and a little more than half of the adults who would have benefited from treatment are actually taking the cholesterol medication. Around 63 million, or over 25%, have LDL levels 130 or higher, while 41 million, or almost 17%, have HDL levels that are less than 40. From 2018 to 2019, heart disease, stroke, and other cardiovascular diseases accounted for direct and indirect costs that totaled over $407 billion and about 12% of U.S. health expenditures, more than any other diagnostic group. For the purposes of this podcast, I will be using the 2018 Guideline on the Management of Blood Cholesterol published by the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association Task Force on Clinical Practice Guidelines. So let's jump into our first case. 
Mr. K is a 56-year-old male who has transferred to our practice. He's being seen for a physical, and he reports a history of hypertension that is treated with lisinopril 5 milligrams, and states he's otherwise healthy. His dad is alive and is age 88 with a medical history of diabetes type 2, hypertension, and a myocardial infarction at age 77. His mom, unfortunately, has passed away at a young age of 64 from breast cancer, and she also had a history of hypertension. He has been married to his wife for the past 30 years and has two adult sons that live nearby. He reports his last appointment and lab work was a couple of years ago because the pandemic postponed his appointments, something we're seeing a lot of as we try to catch up our patients on their maintenance and screening care. So with the little bit of information we have so far, I would start with identifying this patient's risk factors for cardiovascular disease, since dyslipidemia is a major risk factor for this, as well as the topic for this podcast. First, he is male, which places him at higher risk. He has a history of hypertension that we don't yet know how well it is controlled. And there is a family history of hypertension in both of his parents, as well as a myocardial infarction in his dad at age 77. And on top of that, he has not had routine monitoring for his blood pressure and medication because of the pandemic, nor has he had screening, which we have seen for many patients as facilities have closed, healthcare access has become sparse, and we have had to quickly pivot in how we could provide care to our patients because of the pandemic. The USPSTF gives a grade B recommendation for clinicians to prescribe a statin for patients between the ages of 40 and 75 who have one or more cardiovascular disease risk factors such as dyslipidemia, diabetes, smoking, or hypertension when combined with a 10-year ASCVD risk score of 10% or higher. The CDC recommends that most adults have a cholesterol screening completed every four to six years, but this should be done more frequently for patients who have comorbidities or risk factors. I would place Mr. K in the latter group who should have his cholesterol monitored more frequently based on his history and risk factors that we know so far. We do a review of his outside records and identify two more risk factors. He has gained 30 pounds since his last visit three years ago, and he has a 35-year pack history of smoking, having stopped three years ago when his first grandchild was born. Let's first make sure we congratulate him on his smoking cessation, because with a 35-year pack history, it can be very hard to maintain cessation. We dive into his diet and exercise to see what may have contributed to his weight gain. The first thing identified is smoking cessation, which can lead to some people gaining weight. Second is the increased time at home during the pandemic, as he normally would eat smaller meals or even skip while he was at work. But the pandemic forced him to work from home more, and he admits to eating larger meals and snacking since everything is right there for him. He tells us his job is sedentary at home, as he does a lot of sitting at his computer, whereas previously he'd be walking about the building for meetings and sometimes would go for a walk around the building during his lunch break. 
We conclude our visit with a plan to have Mr. K implement some lifestyle changes in his diet and exercise and come back in three months to check his weight and review his labs. Despite the weight gain, his blood pressure seems to be at goal based on his readings in the office, so we don't make any changes to his medication, but we do ask him to check it at home a couple of times per week and to bring the readings back with him. So let's fast forward three months and we're seeing Mr. K for his follow-up. He's made some changes in his diet and he's now walking three to four times a week, about a one and a half mile loop each time. He's still maintaining smoking sensation, and he has lost about 10 pounds. His labs are within normal range, with the exception of his lipid panel, which was completed while he was fasting. We find his results show his total cholesterol is 248, triglycerides are 185, his HDL is 36, and his LDL is 175. So right now, we only have a partial piece of the information to determine if Mr. K needs to be treated for his cholesterol. He's made great strides on his lifestyle changes, but we need to dive in further to analyze these numbers and his risks. Let's quickly review LDL, HDL, and triglycerides. The low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, is the bad cholesterol that's responsible for the majority of cholesterol in our body and which provides us the highest risk for heart disease and stroke when the levels are elevated. Next is the high-density lipoprotein, or HDL, which is referred to as the good cholesterol. HDL will actually absorb cholesterol in our blood and transport it to the liver where it is then flushed out of our bodies. Having higher levels of HDL is good for our body. And lastly are the triglycerides, which are a type of fat in our blood that provides energy for us. Elevated triglycerides can contribute to our risk for cardiovascular disease, as well as having a low HDL, but not to the same impact that an elevated LDL can have, which is why LDL remains our focus for treatment. Using the ACC AHA guidelines, Mr. K falls under the recommendations for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease as he does not have clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or ASCVD as it's often referred to. These would be diagnoses such as coronary heart disease, peripheral arterial disease, or cerebrovascular disease. Given that his age places him in the 40 to 75 year age group, we need to calculate his 10-year ASCVD risk score, which is a calculation on the risk of a cardiovascular event happening for someone in the next 10 years. There are a few tools available for this, and the links can be found in the references for this podcast. Today, I am going to be using the American College of Cardiology ASCVD Risk Estimator Plus tool. The tools do require a certain amount of information in order to make the calculation, and this includes the patient's age, gender, race, a recent blood pressure reading, current cholesterol results, if there's a presence of diabetes, if hypertension is being treated, if there's a smoking history, and lastly, if there's a use of statin and aspirin. 
So we need a little bit more information on Mr. K in order to fill in all parts of the tool. Let's say Mr. K identifies as non-Hispanic white. His blood pressure today is 138 over 78, and he's not on aspirin therapy. His calculated 10-year ASCVD risk comes out to be 13.4%, which places him at intermediate risk, and therefore he should be started on moderate intensity statin therapy. Before we go into the treatment discussion though, I do want to touch base on the potential inaccuracies that can exist, as well as possible bias and propagation of racial disparities with the use of these tools. Many of the tools provide three race options, white, African-American, or other, which is a very limited and inaccurate representation of our world. And the selection of these categories can drastically change the calculated risk for the patient. If Mr. K were to identify as African-American, his risk would increase to 15.3%. But if he were placed in the other category, it would stay the same. So what would this other option mean for someone who is biracial and does not identify with either of the other choices listed? Unfortunately, it could mean an underestimation of their risk. The discussion regarding the accuracy of various risk calculator tools is out of the scope of the purposes of this podcast, but I did want to reinforce that patient care means that we look at and consider all aspects of our patients beyond the color of their skin or their sex. We need to review their medical risk factors, their family history, their social determinants of health, and we need to invite and encourage their input in shared decision-making conversations as we develop our treatment plans. So let's go back to Mr. K. Thus far, we have identified that he has a low HDL, a high total cholesterol, a high LDL, and high triglycerides. He has several risk factors that we have identified and an intermediate 10-year ASCVD risk score. So following the ACC AHA guideline, Mr. K would be recommended to start on a statin. But which one do we pick? According to the guideline, we would want to consider starting him on a moderate intensity statin to reduce his LDL by 30 to 49%. Under the moderate intensity statin choices, we have a torvastatin with doses of 10 to 20 milligrams, Rosuvastatin with doses of 5 to 10 milligrams, Simvastatin with doses of 20 to 40 milligrams, Pravastatin with doses of 40 to 80 milligrams, Lovastatin 40 to 80 milligrams, Fluvastatin XL 80 milligrams, Fluvastatin 40 milligrams twice daily, or Pitavastatin 1 to 4 milligrams. I would like to do a fast fact review of statin medications before we select one. We know that they work by slowing the liver's production of cholesterol, and they increase the liver's ability to remove LDL that's in the blood. We know that the synthesis of cholesterol occurs at night, so we do recommend these medications to be taken in the evening. Their safety during pregnancy is not known, so they are not recommended for women of childbearing age 
and those who are taking them should use contraception that's highly effective. We no longer need to do routine monitoring of liver enzymes while someone is taking a statin as the risk of hepatotoxicity is low. It is acceptable for you to obtain a baseline level of the serum aminotransferase or AST ALT and then repeat if clinically indicated, such as someone who's experiencing right upper quadrant discomfort or who appears to be jaundice. So for Mr. K, I'd likely start him on atorvastatin 10 milligrams daily after we've obtained his AST ALT levels. It's generally recommended to have the patients take their statin for about three months in conjunction with continued lifestyle changes and then to repeat the labs to see how they're doing. Good patient education is crucial when starting a statin, such as the side effects and potential medication interactions. Many people are aware of the risk of myalgia with statins, which can range from mild muscle aches to potential rhabdomyolysis, and this may impact their decision to take the medication. It's important that we educate our patients on the positive impact that a statin can have on their cholesterol and risk factors, while advising that the risks associated with a medication can be impacted by many factors, such as an advanced age or the dosing. Before starting any new medications, it's important that the patient share with all providers that they are taking a statin as statins are known to interact with many medications, such as fibrates, and especially gemfibrozil, cyclosporine, digoxin, warfarin, the macrolides, and azole antifungals. So three months have gone by, and we see Mr. K again to recheck his cholesterol, his blood pressure, and his weight. His blood pressure seems to still be at goal, he has lost another 10 pounds, and he's still maintaining smoking cessation. His new labs show his total cholesterol is now 200. His HDL has increased to 42. His LDL has decreased to 128, and his triglycerides is at 150. Now, total cholesterol is at goal, which is recommended to be 200 or less. And his triglycerides are also at goal, which are recommended to be 150 or less. His HDL goal is to be above 40, so he's just met it, but it would be great if it could be a little bit higher. And his LDL goal would be less than 100. So let's look beyond the numbers and the overall picture for Mr. K. In my eyes, he has done a phenomenal job of maximizing his lifestyle changes as he has now lost a total of 20 pounds. He's continuing to exercise and maintain smoking cessation as well. He has room to move on his goal for his LDL, needing to decrease it by another 28 or more points. It is possible that he could achieve this by staying on his current dose of atorvastatin 10 milligrams with continued lifestyle changes or it's possible he may not be able to achieve it, even with the weight loss. Here is where you are going to use your clinical judgment and share decision-making with Mr. K. At this point, I feel that Mr. K is vested in his health and will stay focused on his changes. 
So if our discussion revealed he wanted to stay with the current plan and recheck again in three months, I would consider this to be a reasonable plan. If we meet in three months and he has lost further weight, but we have not achieved his LDL goal, then I'd have a discussion with him about increasing the dose of the atorvastatin to help get him to less than 100, which may be achieved with an incremental nudge in his dose from 10 to 15 milligrams or one and a half tablets of his dosing. It is often trial and error to find what will work best for our patient while making sure it is a plan that is sustainable for them and that they are comfortable to do. Next, we're gonna move on to our second case. We are gonna meet Mrs. A, who has a medical history of hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and diabetes type two. She has been on rosuvastatin 10 milligrams for the past two years, but was recently increased to 20 milligrams as her LDL was climbing with some weight gain and unhealthy diet changes she has experienced. She scheduled an appointment with you today because she's been having leg pain and wants to get off the statin ASAP. Upon evaluation, she describes this leg pain as mild, crampy like she's been walking up and down stairs and rates it as a two to three out of 10 level. As I mentioned previously, myalgia and rhabdomyolysis are possible effects of statin use. It is reasonable to have a patient take a drug holiday by stopping their statin for a couple of weeks to see how they feel. If the myopathy is due to the statin, the person will usually feel a prompt improvement in their pain. In addition to the drug holiday, there are certain labs you'd wanna to check to make sure they do not have rhabdomyolysis, including a creatinine kinase, or CK, and or a creatinine phosphokinase, or CPK. These levels do need to be checked at least twice for trending as they may not show an immediate abnormality. If you have clinical suspicion that your patient has rhabdomyolysis, then it would be best to send them to the emergency department for close monitoring and IV hydration. Now let's go back to Mrs. A. We decide to have her start a drug holiday and have her come back in two weeks as she does not have symptoms indicative of rhabdomyolysis that necessitates an emergent evaluation, such as cramping or pain that is more severe than would be expected, dark urine color, or a feeling of weakness or tiredness. We do check two sets of her CPK labs and both are within normal limits. Upon her return, she reports that she is feeling much better with complete resolution of her myalgia. She also reports she is never going back on a statin because she does not want that to happen again. Now what? We know with her medical history that statin therapy is indicated and that she has tolerated the previous dose of rosuvastatin 10 milligrams. Unfortunately, many patients will experience fear about going back onto a statin once they have experienced myalgias as a side effect even though it is a rare occurrence. It's important that Mrs. A feels heard when we discuss her concerns about the myalgias recurring. But we also have to explain that the benefit for her health and prevention of long-term cardiovascular events outweighs the risk 
And while we may not be able to maximize her dose to where we need it to be for good LDL control, we should be trying to maximize her dose to the level that she can tolerate. At this point, I'd have a discussion with her about what she could do for lifestyle changes to reduce her weight and make improved dietary selections while restarting her back onto the resuvastatin at her previous dose. It is possible we may need to do this in a stepwise approach and start her at 5 milligrams with a plan to gradually increase her to 10 milligrams over the period of several weeks so that she feels that her body is being given the time to acclimate back to the medication. Alternatively, we could also try her on a different statin and see if we could maximize the dose for her with a goal of achieving an LDL of less than 70. One of the things we should consider is a possible drug interaction that may be contributing to Mrs. A's myalgias, such as a CYP3A4 drug, which could be inhibiting the metabolism of the statin and causing elevated levels in her system, which places her at higher risk for side effects. We may want to consider a statin that has a different metabolism from rosuvastatin that would be less likely to cause her myalgias such as patavastatin, provastatin, or fluvastatin. The American College of Cardiology has a great tool available online called the Statin Intolerance Tool that can walk you through step-by-step for managing patients who are experiencing myalgias like Mrs. A, including the lab monitoring, steps to restarting a statin, steps to consider alternative statin therapy, and a drug interaction tool. This resource can be found in the references for this podcast. And finally, if you have utilized the tool and you've tried every alternative that you can think of or that Mrs. A is willing to try, then you'd want to discuss with her a trial of a non-statin LDL-lowering therapy. So, in the spirit of time, I'd like to move us on to our next case. We're next meeting Miss H., who is a 28-year-old female who presents for routine physical exam. She has no medical history, and her current medication list includes Marina IUD, which was placed two years ago. She is unsure of family history as she was adopted and has not been able to locate her birth parents. She mentions that she can recall her mom saying something about Miss H having higher cholesterol when she was a child, but it was thought to be due to eating habits. She has since become very active as a runner and routinely participates in road races, including marathons, which she is training for one currently. She's 5 foot 9 inches, weighs 130 pounds, and her BMI is 19.5. She has never smoked. She drinks one glass of wine two to three nights per week, except when she's training, and she denies any illicit drug use. Vital signs today are normal, as is her physical exam. We review her chart and see that she has not had any lipid panel done during her care with us for the past five years, and we do not have her outside records. She reports she did not fast for labs today, and she questions if she could still have a lipid panel done. As I mentioned previously, it's recommended to screen for cholesterol every four to six years, usually starting at age 20 for adults. Much of what we determine for our patients in terms of risk factors and treatment plans includes family history, 
which we unfortunately do not have today. Reviewing what we do know, Miss H seems to not have any identified risk factors from her history or exam. It is acceptable to order a non-fasting lipid profile as there's little effect on the LDL result if the patient is or is not fasting. So as long as she has not consumed a high-fat diet in the previous eight hours, we could complete her labs non-fasting. However, there is an impact on the triglycerides and it is recommended to repeat the triglyceride level fasting if the results are more than 400. So a few days later, we received Ms. H's lipid panel, and it shows that the LDL was calculated as a direct LDL due to elevation to the triglycerides. Her LDL was 98, HDL is 72, and her triglycerides were 515. We contact her by phone, and she confirmed she had not eaten a fatty meal prior. So she will return later this week, and she'll repeat after a 12-hour fast. Now, I want to take a quick look closer at triglyceride levels. According to ACC-AHA, elevated triglyceride levels are considered to be an ASCVD risk enhancer when they remain persistently elevated at 175 or higher. There is an increased risk for coronary artery disease, as well as a higher risk of developing metabolic syndrome. Levels at 500 or higher place the patient at risk for pancreatitis and need to be treated immediately with further workup for possible familial hypertriglyceridemia. When an elevated triglyceride level is detected on a non-fasting lab, it is important to repeat it with a fasting lab to make sure it is an accurate result. There can be several things that can elevate a triglyceride level, such as excess alcohol intake, diabetes, HIV infection, and medications such as high-dose thiazides, estrogen and contraceptive pills or hormone replacement therapy, and systemic steroids. So let's go back to Ms. H. We have her come back in the office to go over her labs as her repeat triglycerides came back at 500. We go over any potential prescriptions that are prescribed or not prescribed that she may have taken recently and her diet to see if there's anything that's contributed to her triglyceride levels, but we're not able to identify anything. So what do you want to do next? My first recommendation is to refer her to a dietitian to see if there are any potential changes that can be made. Given the level of her fitness, however, and the unknown family history, I do suspect we are dealing with a familial hypertriglyceridemia and I would refer her to a lipid specialist for further evaluation and treatment so we can decrease any long-term risks for her. Now we can also start her on treatment while we are putting all of these things into place. You may be familiar with the Fibrate Farm class, which includes gemfibrozil and phenofibrate, which can help to lower triglyceride levels up to 50% by reducing triglyceride production in the liver. They can also increase removal of LDL particles. These are generally recommended for patients who have a triglyceride level over 1,000, but can be used for patients who have a consistent level over 500. These are also medications that should not be taken if the patient is pregnant or planning pregnancy, and they can also cause some GI discomfort for the patient. Given that this patient is very active with her marathon training, 
She is not currently planning a family, but that may change. And we have two readings that show her triglycerides to be just over 500. I would opt to be on the conservative side and start by getting with the referrals I previously mentioned, while having her also start on a prescription grade omega-3 fatty acid, which could help to improve her results until we have recommendations from the specialist. So we're gonna move on to our next patient, who is Mr. C, a 73-year-old male who has a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and type two diabetes. He was recently hospitalized three months ago for his first myocardial infarction, and you are seeing him for a routine follow-up appointment. He reports overall he's feeling well, he's completed his cardiac rehab, and he is doing some minor activities around the house. His recent lipid panel shows that his LDL is 145, well above the goal of 70 for him. He had previously been taken lovastatin 60 milligrams once per day, but he was switched to the max dose of atorvastatin 80 milligrams once per day upon his hospital discharge. So what do you do in a situation where the LDL is still not at goal, but the patient's on the maximum dose of statin therapy? This is an example of where we would introduce a non-statin treatment as an adjunctive to go with Mr. C's statin therapy. In 2022, the ACC Expert Consensus Panel published recommendations for use of non-statin therapies to help reduce LDL levels. In our example, the ACC recommends the use of azetamibe as the initial non-statin treatment for a patient who has clinical ASCVD and whom is on max statin dosing with an LDL above 70. When combined with a statin, azetamibe can reduce LDL levels up to 25% by inhibiting cholesterol absorption in the small intestine. It is available in a 10 milligram tablet that is taken once per day and is generally well tolerated with a low side effect profile but it should not be prescribed for patients who have moderate or severe liver disease. It is recommended that liver functions be checked prior to starting azetamibe, as well as during treatment as there is a risk of persistent elevation to these levels with the statin combination. After reviewing Mr. C's diet to see if there's any additional changes that could be made, we decide to start him on acetamide in conjunction with his atorvastatin, and we have him come back in three months to see how he's doing and recheck his lipid profile. Three months later, unfortunately, his LDL remains above goal with a reading of 115. He is now on max therapy of his atorvastatin and the acetamide at 10 milligrams. Now, where do we go with Mr. C's treatment? Given his medical history, it's important that we get him as close to his LDL goal as possible to reduce his risk of further cardiovascular events. At this point, it would be appropriate to refer him to a lipid specialist to provide guidance on the next steps for treatment. There has been several new non-statin therapies introduced to the market as options, which I'd like to briefly review with you now. The first is a PCSK9 inhibitors, which bind to the PCSK9, resulting in an increase in the number of LDL receptors that then help to clear LDL that's circulating in the blood. 
These are subcutaneous injections that have the potential to decrease LDL levels between 45 and 64 percent, dependent upon which PCSK9 is chosen. There is insufficient data on the safety in pregnancy, so it is recommended to avoid use with pregnancy. The second non-statin therapy is bempedoic acid, which inhibits synthesis of cholesterol in the liver and can reduce the LDL level by 17 to 18% when it's combined with a statin. A potential side effect is hyperuricemia, so it's recommended to check the uric acid level before starting the medication. Additionally, it may cause tendon rupture or tendonitis, so good patient education is needed to make sure they are aware of what symptoms to monitor for. This also has limited data regarding safety in pregnancy, and it is recommended that the medication be stopped when pregnancy occurs unless the therapy benefit outweighs fetal risk. One important thing to note is the potential for drug-to-drug -drug interactions as it should not be used in conjunction with simvastatin 20 milligrams or more, or provastatin 40 milligrams or higher. The last one I'd like to review is inclisiron, which inhibits PCSK9 production in the liver, which leads to a prolonged activity of the LDL receptors. This is another injection that is administered subcutaneously on day one, then again on day 90, and then every six months, and it has the potential to decrease LDL levels 48 to 52%. As with the others, recommendations are to avoid this during pregnancy. While it is unlikely you'll be managing these medications in your practice, it's important to have a baseline understanding of them, their effectiveness, their interactions, and also the monitoring that is required for them. For further reference and guidance, the ACC recommendations document provides a great outline for when to refer patients to a lipid specialist. Before we end our podcast, I'd like to go over a few key takeaways. The first being statin medications being considered the first line of treatment for patients who have LDLs above goal. The second key takeaway is that cholesterol screening should occur every four to six years starting at age 20 and occur more frequently if the person has additional risk factors. Our third takeaway is that lipid levels can be attained non-fasting, but if the triglyceride level is more than 400, then a repeat level should be attained in a fasting state. Patients who are on a maximum statin therapy who cannot achieve LDL goal should have ezetimibe added to their regimen for combo therapy. And our last key takeaway is that patients who are on maximum statin therapy in addition to ezetimibe but are still not able to achieve their LDL goal should be referred to a lipid specialist for further treatment recommendations. So that brings us to the end of our session. I thank you for joining me for this case study review on the management of dyslipidemia.